Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are Christian Disciples in Mission. Welcome, everybody. This is the conversation from St. Patrick's Studio. My name is Brian Cannon. I'm the Director of Evangelization and Adult Formation for St. Patrick Catholic Community. Joining me today is Father Edward Beck, Passionist Priest, author, playwright, and a contributor for CNN on matters of faith and religion. Father Beck, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. It's really good to be with you. So uh, a couple of things have happened since we last saw each other in December. Um, New Year's, <laughs> a couple of other things. Yeah. Uh, it's all a blur. How are you and how are the passionists? Doing well. You know, this time has been so weird and an adjustment for everyone. I have been working on um, a media project here in Los Angeles where I am. And then when COVID-19 kind of got more severe um, and I realized the lockdown and the shutdown that was coming, I went back to New York because the passionist community that I live with is based there. And so I was there for about eight weeks and then finally needed to return to LA because things started to move a little bit here and I had some more work to do. So it was a major adjustment though, like for everybody to just suddenly have everything cut off and have to have a new pace for life and uh, set new priorities and learn new skills. Uh, it's been, it's been you know, interesting, but challenging for sure. Right. Yeah. And that's how do you be church in this time? That's the question that I think every faith community is wrestling with, St. Pat's uh, included. And, you know, at St. Pat's, we've got passionate people. I think that's one thing that really kind of sets us apart is that we we have really passionate people. And that includes on all ends of the political spectrum as well. And certainly political polarization is not anything new. But uh, recently, when the president took that photo, holding the Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh, Chris Cuomo had you on CNN to talk about it. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but now that video clip has over a million views on YouTube and 12,000 comments. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Um, wh what nerve was touched there? Well, it began with a rather controversial tweet of mine because I was kind of upset by the actions of the administration that day. And I thought that it was a misappropriation of the Bible. Um, I thought it was wrong that those protesters be re removed by force from in front of that church, um, which basically appeared to be just for a photo op with that Bible. And so I tweeted something like, has the Bible ever been used in a more disingenuous or manipulative way? And that tweet went viral. And I guess it was that night or the following day, I don't remember, uh, I was on with Chris Cuomo on CNN. And again, um, I think that segment got a lot of attention. And as you said on YouTube, it's you know over a million hits. And I think that the attention that it kind of sparked for me was both positive and negative. Um, a lot of the negativity was that people started to say, well, you know, you shouldn't be involved in politics. You know, we need separation of church and state. You need to stay out of politics. And yet I didn't really see it as being political. I saw it that the administration introduced religion 
and religious symbolism and important religious text, namely the Bible, into this conversation. And so I thought I had every right as a religious leader to opine about it. Um, others did not agree. And others who were supportive of what the president did that day kind of went after me you know, on Twitter and social media. And it was quite a, a firestorm for a while about it. But you know, in retrospect, I, I wouldn't do it any differently myself. I think what I said on Chris Cuomo's show was what I felt and uh, what I tweeted was what I felt. And I think that, you know, I, I believe in the separation of church and state. However, I, I don't believe that we can remain simply apolitical because I think that religious issues are often political issues, you know, because they're dealing with social justice, they're dealing with people's lives and issues of morality. And, and, and I think we are called to be in the midst of that conversation and opine about it. So to say that we'll never talk about anything political, I think is disingenuous because I think that's where a lot of decisions that affect people's lives and faithful people to whom we are committed, their lives. And I think as religious leaders, we need to have a stance sometimes and we need to speak out when we think it's important enough to speak out about it. Yeah, and, and you know, how else are you supposed to interpret Matthew 25? If, if you're not discerning who who is the vulnerable, who, and, and, and I wonder if you can maybe talk to us a, a little bit about that. How, how do we, when we see the power of symbol, right? Everywhere, now, now even something like a mask has been politicized, the Bible, holding up the Bible is a powerful symbol. We see this with statues and, and all of this, um, this power of symbol, but how do we then, you know, we, we get sometimes criticized for being too political, but how do we distill all of that into, okay, who, how do we uh, pursue justice for the vulnerable? Who are the vulnerable? What is justice? So what do you think about how disciples are to discern that during these times? Well, as you said, I think Matthew 25 is, is a pretty good guidepost and the life of Jesus is a pretty good guidepost. I mean, that's whom we follow. And, you know, a lot of times as a priest, people will say to me, well, how should I get to heaven? You know, what do I have to do? You know, the scripture question for eternal life. And it's a lot of times not the stuff that we usually would think about or focus on, but those kinds of questions are really answered by Matthew 25. I mean, that's the only text in which we hear Jesus talking about what the criteria for salvation is. And it's, did you feed the hungry? Did you visit the imprisoned? Did you clothe the naked? I mean, those kind of corporal works of mercy. And so that's why I think what, what you're saying for me rings very true that a lot of those issues, immigration, did you welcome the stranger? I mean, they enter into the political forum. So I don't think we can simply divorce ourselves from it or say we don't have an opinion or we shouldn't get involved because that's where decisions are made that affect issues of justice, that affect the criteria given in Matthew 25. So how can we not speak out about it? How can we not have an opinion about it? That's the very stuff we're called to opine about. And really, it's the type of thing that should be a unifying force, I would think, for Christians, because it's gospel, right? It's, it's pure gospel. It's from, it's from the mouth of the Savior. So 
yeah, there's going to be the political dimensions of it. And there may be political disagreements, but how do you think it's gotten to such a fractured state that the very essence of the gospel becomes contentious? Because I think that in some ways, some religion and some religious leaders have co-opted the message that religion is just about one or two issues. And if we focus on those one or two issues, that's what's important. So a lot of times the issue becomes abortion, which is a very important issue. And the side of the politic political spectrum that seems to focus most on abortion says that it is the deciding factor where one stands on abortion and that issue. And that that trumps, no pun intended, all other life issues, except that uh, while, while we have to admit that abortion is important, what we hear from the Pope and what we see from our tradition is that other life issues are really important and matter too. So things like the death penalty, things like immigration, things like care of the poor. And, and, and so I think you have to begin to weigh a lot of the issues as Christians and say, well, Jesus opines about certain things for sure and other things not so much. So all of that is extrapolation. And I'm not saying it's not valid because we have a faith tradition. We do scripture and tradition, and we have a church tradition that forms us, you know, with a conscience around certain issues. But if you really want to look at the gospels and what Jesus seemed to concern himself with most, it was not sexuality. It was not moral issues. <laughs> they were issues of inclusion issues of justice and issues of caring for the poor. So I think that if we want to begin to set up some kind of framework or parameter for how we're to act, and we wanna take Jesus as the role model, and, and I don't simply mean what would Jesus do? Because I don't think we can extrapolate that way. I mean, Jesus was in a different socio-political climate. Uh, I like to say Jesus never had to deal with snow. Right. You know, so every I, by the way, <laughs> yeah, everything doesn't translate. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, I think when you look at the core message and how that translates, many of, much of it, is still applicable. And where we can make the application, I think we indeed must and are called morally and ethically to do so. And when you you speak, it, it draws to mind to me the image of the seamless garment, right, uh, of Cardinal Bernadine that that justice issues fundamental to the gospel are all interconnected. They're all interwoven. And, all, and, and so you, I don't think you can parse them out, separate them and treat them as a litmus test for your own political ideology on either side of the spectrum. So, so how do you view that seamless garment now in the American context? Like you said, Jesus never had to deal with snow and he never had to deal with um, Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 and um, all of the things that we're now grappling with. How do you see the seamless garment in our culture? Well, first of all, let me say that I studied my theology in Chicago at Catholic Theological Union in the mid 80s and Cardinal Bernardin was in fact the Cardinal then. And so I remember well his really uh, the use of that term that, I mean, that's where it has its origin from Cardinal Bernardin in Chicago. And his point was, as we know, that you can't 
separate all of these life issues, that it, it, it's a piece of a whole and that we have, to, we have to look at it as a whole. And so I think it's always impressed me because I think that it causes us to really, to weigh what's important and try to not make a hierarchy of importance our hierarchy. That, that what does it mean to be truly pro-life? And it means that we also care for those after the womb. You know, once they're born, what happens? And, and what are the um, priorities then? And, and so I think Bernadine's point was that all of these issues, the seamless Gorman approach, all of these issues matter because they affect life. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it's not to diminish one or two particular life issues, but it's to put them in context that we're talking about life before birth and after birth, and both are important. Right. To change gears just a little bit, there is one part of your bio that really intrigues me, and it is the playwright portion of your, your bio. Um, where does that come from? And maybe if you could talk a little bit about the power of the arts to hold up a mirror to society. Yeah, um, thanks for asking that, Brian. I, I never set out to be a playwright. I, I was actually scheduled to make a private retreat. I had just given a parish retreat on Martha's Vineyard uh, at St. Elizabeth's Parish then. And I was scheduled to stay on at the rectory and make my own five-day retreat. However, the pastor forgot that I was staying and he had promised his guest room in the rectory to friends of his who were visiting, I believe from Arizona. And so there I was stuck on Martha's Vineyard with nowhere to stay and I had planned this retreat. And so a friend of mine said, well, you know, a recently widowed friend of mine has this house and she has her own, there's, there's a private space in the bottom of the house, um, like an apartment. And I think she'd let you stay there to make your retreat. And so I moved into the house with this recently widowed woman and indeed there was like an apartment underneath the house that I stayed in. And I had not too long before that lost my mother to lung cancer when she was 69 years old. And it turns out that this woman lost her husband to lung cancer. And it was the same kind of small cell lung cancer. And so I would do my retreat all day, but then I would have dinner with this woman. She would prepare dinner in the regular part of the house and I would join her for dinner and we would have these conversations. And a lot of the conversations wound up being around our mutual kind of loss and grief and understanding of how loved ones were taken. And it turned out to be fascinating for me how the week developed. And I was taking a run uh, about the third day I was there. And it just struck me that it was an interesting premise for a play like this priest moves into this house with this recently widowed woman and they bond over their shared grief. But then what, what might happen? Like if I, if I were to let it go dramatically then and let my imagination take over and a story develop, what might the story be? And I started scribbling stuff down during that week's retreat and it really was the beginning of my first play, Sweetened Water, which is not autobiographical, but that that beginning part of how it came to be is indeed autobiographical. And I had that play 
interestingly produced at a theater on Martha's Vineyard a few years later. So it was kind of full circle that where I began writing this play, you know, it comes back to be produced there. And um, it was kind of a remarkable uh, circle of events. And why it was so important to me, Brian, is because I think there were certain things that, I mean, I have three books, nonfiction books, and there's some, certain stuff that you stay away from when you're writing nonfiction or when you're a priest writing about certain issues because you know it's gonna be controversial. You know it's gonna be scrutinized, especially if you're in the public eye. And yet with fiction or with drama, I felt very liberated to explore issues that maybe I wouldn't write about in a personal way or through nonfiction, but through fiction and the use of drama and creating a story and characters. I mean, I was able to explore stuff that I couldn't from a pulpit and that I couldn't in my books. And the second play the same way called Ungodly Pursuit, it, it was the same thing. It was when the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report was released and the whole sex abuse crisis in the church was once again front and center. Uh, it, it was so discouraging to me to have this now, you know, this Pennsylvania grand jury report and the struggle of that and, you know, the lives that had been hurt and ruined by sex abuse in the church. And yet I knew I needed a way to, to process it that wouldn't be about writing factual articles or stuff like that. And that's where the play emerged. I was on sabbatical in Los Angeles and it was a writing sabbatical and I began writing on Godly Pursuit. So they both came from experiences in my life um, or, or, or struggles or questions that I didn't know how else to explore and drama and um, the creativity of it allowed me to talk about those things and to explore them in ways that I couldn't any other way. And that's really how it happened for me. It's kind of um, a self-discovery, I would imagine, in, in a really profound way, like Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Each step you learn maybe a little bit more about yourself and you're able to reflect on that on a deeper level. Can you talk about what that type of self-expression can do for your prayer life? Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I think what it does is it opened me to exploring issues in spirituality and faith that I don't think I would have done any other way because and, and I never believed this to be true until I was involved in it, which I heard playwrights and dramaturgs speak of characters having their own life and their own voice. And, and suddenly the character takes over and the voice of the character takes over and you become almost a conduit by which those issues and, and that dialogue and those concerns of that character come front and center. And I found in writing that that was exactly the case. I mean, once I had a story in my head and once I picked the characters to inhabit that story, they took over and their voices took over. And there were times when it felt like I was simply channeling what these characters wanted and had to say and the issues that would be explored. And so from my own prayer and my own reflection, I began to ask questions and pray about things that I hadn't before because they hadn't been unearthed 
in the same way. And I never thought about them in certain ways until I began to write and allow the characters to explore them. And so in, in a weird way, my own characters and my own story impacted my story and my spirituality and my faith in very challenging ways and with questions I didn't have before and questions even of God that I didn't have before. And it's all because I, I kind of gave them, namely the characters and the story, the free reign to do that and not to be afraid of it. I mean, in nonfiction, I always found like, even though they say don't self-censor yourself, I mean, write and then let an editor censor it if it needs to be. But I always found like, well, you know, I'm writing this and this will be read and it'll be uh, scrutinized. And I, I didn't have that same kind of pressure writing plays and it was very liberating for me personally and spiritually. A little bit scary to put yourself out there like that? Less scary with the plays because again, they're fiction. And I can say, well, I, I may not feel the perspective of a certain character. I mean, because you need an antagonist, you need a protagonist, you need to have conflict in a story. So not every character would be my personal take. And so in some ways it, it, it was more freeing and less threatening for me, uh, more so than like my first book is a memoir, you know, a, a spiritual memoir. And that was very threatening because it's very personal. And I do take some rather controversial stands in that book. And I did get some letters from bishops and others when that book was published. Um, and also a lot of supportive letters from priests who felt like I, I shared something of a story that was honest and helpful, but that was more intimidating than writing fiction for me. That's good. Uh, for me, if I, if I were to go out on that limb, I'd be uh, terrified it wasn't any good. And then other people read it and found out that it wasn't any good. So no, I admire the, the confidence with which you put yourself out there. And um, are you open to further writing in that style? Are, do you have anything in the works? Um, I don't have anything in the works right now, simply because, as you know, theater and drama are kind of on hold. I was beginning to write a pilot for a series. Um, and then when everything stopped and production on everything stopped, um, in the meantime, I was starting to try to get Ungodly Pursuit produced in a theater. And it was starting to get sent out then to theaters, but then everything shut down just as I was doing that. Yeah. And so in this pause, this COVID pause, I have felt kind of creatively paused as well, because I think I just want to get the temperature a bit more on where things are going and for the arts, how long will it be before it comes back? And for many, it's been a very fertile time because they haven't been able to do anything else but write. And, you know, when things come back, they'll have stuff. It's been more of a block for me. It's been kind of like, I don't know what now. And I, I didn't get ungodly pursuit produced yet. And so to work on something else almost seems like abandoning this child in order to foster another one before it's really ready that the other one hasn't taken flight yet. Yeah. And I, I'm a former theater kid. So I consider this my audition for any of your future works, but, um, <laughs> but also, what I'm hearing from other creative people is, is just that it's like feast or famine for them. It's either, it's either a complete desert time or a complete pause, uh, you know, and, and just taking everything in, or it's, it's the flip side of that is the hyper productivity that I think some people are experiencing now. But, um, so you, you were ordained in 1985. Yeah. And so if my math is right now, I'm not a math major, but that's, that's 35 years of 
priestly ministry. What have been the highlights for you? And then maybe what have been some of the frustrations? Ooh, that's a, that's a really tough question that there have been so many highlights. Um, I think that without naming particular experience, the privilege of it for me has been that as a priest, I have found in most relationships, you really have to work to get to a point of intimacy and trust. And while trustworthiness of priesthood has really taken a hit in recent years because of the sex abuse scandal. My experience for, for, for most of my priesthood, even, even through the scandal part, is that I had an access to people's deepest thoughts and troubles and concerns and hopes and dreams just because of who I was as a priest. And you can't go into a confessional, a reconciliation room, or sit down in a counseling room when you're meeting someone for the first time and everything is on the table right away. And it's instant intimacy. And the kind of trust that that requires or the years of relationship building that sometimes is necessary to get to that point came almost instantaneously. And it wasn't because of me, you know, it was because of, of the role and the privilege of having been ordained to that ministry. And I think that that's been the high point for me, that kind of, of trust and that kind of connection to people on very deep levels that I've been afforded simply for being an ordained priest. And when I think back about my priesthood, I mean, my first assignment was in a parish in Union City, New Jersey. And you know, in a parish, you do everything, as you well know, from baptism to funeral and everything in between and first communions and all of those, those liminal experiences in people's lives. And you get to enter into those, you know, in very profoundly deep ways. And again, that, that was really uh, the privilege part for me. Um, now, the second part of your question, the low points, I would have to say was um, the sex abuse scandal, um, you know, especially, you know, the first time around after Boston and the Boston Globe articles and Spotlight the movie. And, you know, I, I really think up to that point, I had always been so proud to put on a Roman collar, you know, and, and, and I think it was viewed in a certain way by and large. And then suddenly uh, it felt like you, you were an object of suspicion or you know, people looked at you like, well, how, how can you still wear that through this? You know, and um, I, I think that was really hard to see a life's work and ministry filtered through a certain lens um, that I certainly had nothing to do with, but I was aligned to the institution uh, naturally by being a priest. And I think it was hard to, to see all of the flaws in that institution and in the way that that uh, crisis was handled or not handled well by leadership and by authority and the questioning of the authority of the church and the power of the church um, and the spirit filled nature of the church was all called into question. And I think that was, that was really hard because I always felt like I tried to give my life to something noble and then suddenly it was seen as ignoble. 
And uh, it happened so quickly that uh, I, I didn't quite understand it. And it took me a while to begin to see what was happening there and to begin to try to adjust to a new normal as far as that was concerned. Yeah. You mentioned uh, liminal space or the, the liminal, where the veil is thin, I would say, between our human experience and the divine presence. Um, it's so often hard for me to recognize the divine presence in the moment. I often have to look back and reflect and see, okay, here, here I see God's action. And I suspect I'll do that with this time too, this very strange time, I'll be able to look back and reflect. But I'm wondering if you've encountered any liminal space even within this, where the veil has been pulled back a little bit and you can see the divine presence even in the midst of all of this challenge. I would say for, for me, it's been the ways in which, and again, it, it sounds trying to kind of trite or hackneyed almost to say, but the appreciation of the simple things and God's presence and activity in things that are really simple, like being able to gather in community, being able to share a meal you know, with a friend, uh, being able to be in nature um, confidently, you know, even with, with other people around. Um, so, so, so the ways in which I think many of us, and I certainly did, took things for granted um, and, and didn't really necessarily recognize them as spiritual moments or as God moments or as moments when God got revealed to me, um, though sometimes I recognize that often I didn't, I think the appreciation of, of the simple really came home in a way that I think will be lasting um, at least I'm hope is going to be lasting for our world as well, because I, I, I think we maybe didn't realize how tentative it all is and how precious it all is, that there, there's such a hallmark to our spirituality and to the gospels of saying, you know, depend on none of it because it be, could be taken tomorrow. You know, don't build the second set of barns thinking that you're going to not have to worry anymore because you could die that night. And I, I think we hear it as, yeah, we, we know it's tentative and we know it's limited, but we really don't live that way. We really don't live as though it's finite or it's at least kind of knocking at the door for us. And I, I think even now, perhaps we're not. But I think in looking at the amount of suffering and death around and the precarious nature right now of society and finances and the loss that people have experienced, I think it kind of brings us up short to say, well, what really matters? What's really important? And I mean, those are God moments, I think, because it's, it's needing to be pushed into saying, what will I give my life for? What in the end really do, do I think this all stands for and what really matters? And I think this time has kind of elicited that in people and in, certainly in myself. And finally, let's let's dream big. And let's say that that beautiful simplicity really does take root and really is sustaining. Let, let's say that it doesn't fade away once the crisis is controlled or you know, once a, a greater uh, sense of uh, racial justice is realized. Let's say we hold on to that and we dream big. 
what does that do for us, both as a church and uh, just individually? Well, I think if we can hold on to that and really see the interconnectedness and believe it, I mean, just, just think that the whole world, the global experience of going through this COVID, I can't remember another time when globally we've experienced something almost simultaneously so that no matter what color you are or what economic strata, you know, or what ethnicity, you know, what belief, what denomination, it was all the same. We, we, we realized our common humanity and vulnerability in all of this. So I, I think to myself, well, I mean, something like climate change and the environment, you know, in trying to kind of drive home Pope Francis's message uh, from his encyclical about the environment and climate. I mean, all of kind of the naysayers and people who say, you know, it doesn't really exist and it's, it's not man-made and all of that. And I think, I wonder if we come out of this and we say as a global community, this does impact all of us. And we are that interconnected. So we can't say that one country or one part of the world can be abusive, you know, of the environment and that it's not going to affect another part. You know, just like we can't say if, if one country or one part of the world does not deal with this virus effectively and proactively, that it's not going to affect everybody else because indeed it has and it continues to. So I guess the dream is that the interconnectedness of how reliant we are on each other and how dependent uh, for survival, for growth, uh, for goodness, that that kind of takes hold and real, we realize it really is one world and it really is one people and, and one goal ultimately. And if it can bring us together in that way, you know, in compassion that because of a common suffering and struggle, then I think it can bring together for common purpose and for advancement as well. Father Edward Beck, thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. I found it to be very fruitful and I know that everybody in St. Patrick Catholic community is remembering you fondly and praying for you and your passionist brothers. So thank you so much for taking this time. Brian, thank you so much. I have such fond memories of St. Patrick's. I loved the retreat uh, that I was able, privileged to be able to lead there. It was such an alive community. And I hope one day to get back there and be able to speak to that community again in person because I found it so, so life-giving. So thank you for this time and thanks St. Pat's as well. We're ready for you whenever you come on back. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Homily Podcast. We are Christian Disciples in Mission, 